Amen. We'll take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5 once again as we continue to walk through this Sermon on the Mount, this sermon that Jesus preached, obviously many years ago now that He preached this message, but uh, it's, they're so, it's so rich, there's so much here for us that He covered, and it's so interesting, I think, as well to remember who Jesus was talking to when He first preached this message. He was preaching to a group, a multitude there on the side of a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, as they would have been sitting there and He would have been standing there in front of them, or as, as the Scripture actually says, sorry, He was sitting and they were standing. So I won't do that to you tonight. But it does say that when He was set, the disciples came to Him. So He was sitting down and teaching them as they listened to Him. And He dealt with all kinds of issues that I would say would have been some of the hot-button issues for the Jews of His day. And uh, you know what I'm talking about when you hear somebody speak on something that lots of people are passionate about or have very strong opinions about. You either have people who agree with something strongly or usually disagree with something that strongly. And that's what happens when you have hot button issues. People are either all in or all against something. And Jesus is dealing with these kinds of things because he wanted to help his Jewish audience to understand the Old Testament law was absolutely true, but how many of them culturally had taken that Old Testament law, they had made up their own sort of application of way of living it out, kind of their own opinion about the Old Testament, and they were following their own opinions and their own way of thinking instead of actually following the Word of God. And I think the same danger is really in front of us today, where it's very easy for us living where we do, coming to church, having a Bible in our house. Like, it's pretty common for most people to have a Bible, at least one. A lot of people have many Bibles in their house. If you don't have it in your house, you can get it on your phone, you can get it on the internet. It's so freely available for us in our country that we can tend to live our lives based on sort of our own opinion about what the Word of God says, instead of being careful to examine the Scripture for ourselves, for what God says at His Word, and then living it out faithfully. And that's the importance of studying God's Word. Paul wrote, and he said this, "...study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." So it's very important that we study God's Word because God's Word is the source of all the truth that we need to live our lives. In fact, all of God's Word is truth. And so if we'll study it and live it, we will be in line with God's will for our lives. And as we walk according to God's will, according to God's Word, we can then experience God's blessing. In a very basic sense, God's Word is like an instruction book for your life. And if you try to live your life without the instructions, if you try to do just about anything without the right instructions, you, you might figure out certain things, but you'll probably mess up a lot of stuff in the process. And so it's so important to go back to the Word of God on every issue. Tonight, we're dealing with something, a second part of something, that can be challenging. It's very prevalent in our society, but Jesus speaks about the topic of divorce. 
And so let's talk again about tonight. What does Jesus think of divorce? Because in one way or another, this issue affects all of us. Whether or not you've been divorced, whether or not you've grown up in a home where your parents were divorced, or whether or not you have a family member or something else, all of us in one way or another have been affected by this issue. And even if somehow, some way, you do not have a single family member that you know or yourself that's ever been divorced, which I think is really unlikely in the day that we live today, but even if that were somehow possible, we're all affected by it just because it's such a prevalent issue in our society. And it's interesting for us, I think, that Jesus dealt with this issue and that we should understand it from God's Word as well. Last week, we started off by looking at four different views that people have on this topic of divorce and, of course, the idea of remarriage, which comes after that. The first view that we talked about is that it's not permissible under any circumstance for any reason. And that's what some people would say. It's never right ever for any reason to be divorced. But I think you've already seen enough to see that that's not the position that God's Word teaches. And uh, it, if you were here last week, I gave you some homework to read Jeremiah 3 verse 8. And in that passage, and we'll get there in just a little bit, God actually speaks about how he divorced the nation of Israel. And that's an interesting thing to consider. The second view that is sometimes taken when it comes to divorce is that divorce and remarriage are permissible for any reason or none. So you can just divorce whenever you feel like it. And I hope that you've already seen enough from Scripture to say that's definitely not the position of the Bible either, that that's just okay whenever you feel like it, just get divorced. That's definitely not the position that the Bible takes. That's not what Jesus thinks about divorce. These last two are, are very similar, but they do have some differences. One is that divorce is permitted under certain circumstances, but remarriage is never permitted. So if you get divorced, you can never again be married. That's one view that some people take. And the other is that both divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. So that's where we started off last week. We then looked at some of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, how in this particular time period, they were literally divorcing for any reason whatsoever. Like literally, if your wife burns your dinner, you could divorce her. As long as you wrote her a divorce a certificate of divorce and gave it to her, if you didn't like how she looked that day, you could divorce her for any reason whatsoever. And so that obviously was not right. And that was, but that was the teaching that was going on in that day, which is very likely why Jesus dealt with this in our text here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. And he said, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. That's what some people say. Hey, as long as you give her a, a certificate of divorce, it's okay to divorce her. That's what some people were saying. But Jesus says, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving, he gives here a place where it might be permissible, saving for the cause of fornication, 
causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So, Jesus in this text is dealing with the problem that the scribes and Pharisees were living out, that you could divorce for any reason whatsoever. The idea that they were taking was that as long as I divorce my wife, it's okay to go and marry somebody else, and I can divorce her for any reason I want. Jesus dealt with a similar issue when it came to lust and adultery. And they were saying, well, if I just look at a woman and lust in my heart, that's okay, right? Jesus says, no, no, no. If you even look at her with lust in your heart, that's sin as well. You've committed adultery with, you, with her in your heart. So Jesus is dealing with these heart issues. A lot of times, isn't it easy to want to classify our sin into just the area of things we do, like actions, things we do or don't do? Well, I didn't, I didn't actually go through with it. But what Jesus is saying is, if it's in your heart to do it, if you're trying to, you're thinking about doing wrong, that's wrong. That's wrong. Now, the hard thing that we've already looked at a number of times is, well, if that's the case, then every one of us is messed up. Every one of us has done wrong. And that's Jesus' point. That's exactly right. There is none righteous. No, not one. Even if you could keep the law perfectly in your outward actions, your heart is still wicked. And every single one of us needs a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And that's really the whole thrust of, of this part of the Sermon on the Mount is that your works, your good actions are not enough to save you. In fact, the Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to His mercy, He saved us. Why? Because our good works, as the Scripture tells us, are just like filthy rags. It's not enough. You can't do enough good and try hard enough to be accepted by God. And that could be really discouraging, except for the fact that God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin, both the actions and the attitudes that are wrong, and His death, His blood paid the penalty for your sin. And if you'll trust in Him, you can be saved. You can have your sin forgiven, both the sins of what you did with your actions and, both the, and the sins of what you've done with your attitudes. And that's the beauty of Christ's work for us on the cross. We look then at the teaching of the Old Testament on divorce and how the idea of marriage really was God's plan. Marriage is not just something that People just came up with one day that Adam and Eve were looking at each other like, hey, we should get married. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. No, God created marriage. And so because it's something that God created, he says it this way, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. If God has created something, it's not our place to break it apart, right? It's not ours. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? Because sometimes, like I might think with my wife, I might say, well, this is our marriage. We can do with it what we want. Somebody might say the same thing about their life. Well, this is my life. I can do with it what I want. But that really goes contrary to the teaching of Scripture, doesn't it? In fact, the Bible talks about your body. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians. He says, what? Know ye not that you're not your own? 
for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are His. See, your body's not your own, it's God's, because He made you. Just like in the same sense, while I understand, don't, don't misunderstand me, you and your spouse, you may say, this is our marriage. You understand it's not just yours, because if God's the one that puts marriage together, then it's really ultimately His marriage. It's something that God has joined together. And if God has made this family, this unit, this body, this one flesh relationship as it's described, then it's not ours to break it apart. These are some of the many teachings we see in the Old Testament when it comes to marriage. God's plan was for two to become one, and Jesus said this was for life. For life. But even though God created marriage way back in the beginning, right after He made man and woman, right after He made Adam and Eve, it was right after that. I mean, just a brief period right after that that there were the first marriage problems. And it came as a result of something we refer to as the fall. The fall is when Adam and Eve chose to sin. God put them in the beautiful Garden of Eden. He made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil amongst many other trees, including the tree of life. And He said, you can eat from any tree, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, eating from that tree was them basically saying, we want to do it our way instead of God's way. But remember, Satan in the form of a snake came up and tempted them and said, you won't surely die. In fact, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll be able to be at the same level as God. And so Adam and Eve believed. Eve first, she took it and ate and gave to Adam and he ate as well. And they committed sin, the first sin, the first fall, which is the beginning of the first marriage problems. Now, the scripture doesn't record for us what all went on at that time. But can you imagine the conversations between Adam and Eve after the fall? Right away, as all of a sudden now they have lost all of this wonderful gift of this beautiful garden and all of these wonderful opportunity to be with God. And now they're struggling with their sin. The problem in marriage started with the fall, and God even spoke about it in Genesis 3.16. He said to the woman that she would experience sorrow in conception, and in sorrow, He said, Thou shalt bear or bring forth children. And He says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So the woman would desire to be the head of the home. That happens today, doesn't it? And the man would rule but would be overbearing in his rule. And that's why when you get all the way to the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, when God is speaking about marriage, He says that the husband is to love his wife. Is it because wives aren't supposed to love their husbands? No. It goes clear back to Genesis 3.16. The husband would desire would be to rule over the wife. That's like stern over, oversight and authority and you can even think of that leading to abuse, and that takes place in our day and age that we live in, just like it did throughout history. And that's why God's specific command to the husband is to love, to cherish, to care for his wife. And then he says to the wife that she is to submit herself to her husband. 
Is it because women are less valuable than men? No. Is it because the man's way smarter than his wife? Definitely not. I know that's not true in, in our marriage. No, it's because that's how God designed it to be. And he also understood, based on Genesis 3.16, that the woman's desire would be to rule over the man. That was going to be her struggle, just like it was going to be the man's struggle to be overbearing instead of loving to his wife. So there's so many wonderful things we can learn about marriage. And then, obviously, the flip side of that, divorce in the Old Testament. So the tragic consequence of the sin struggle in marriage is the propensity to divorce. Divorce comes because of sin. And some people think, well, two people are struggling in this marriage. If we just get divorced, that will fix our problem. Well, it may stop the struggle in the marriage, but it won't stop the sin problem. One author I read said it this way, dealing with the struggles in your marriage by getting divorced is like dealing with a splinter in your hand by cutting off your arm. Does it deal with the splinter in your hand? Yes, but is that the way it should be dealt with or does it just make the problem potentially even worse and carry it on? Of course. We would say, you don't cut off your arm when there's a splinter in your hand. In the same way, if you're struggling in your marriage, the first answer should not be, well, let's just cut it off. Why? Because the problem is not just, well, two people, we're just trying to get married and things aren't just working out. No, the problem is much deeper than that. It's sin. And you've got two sinners trying to live together in harmony. And sin always causes struggle. And the only answer to sin is not through tearing things apart. It's found in Jesus Christ who brings hope and peace and restoration. So, I was giving you a quick review of what we did last week. I want to jump in specifically onto the teaching of Jesus. What does Jesus think of divorce? We've already read Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And here Jesus is affirming the teaching, we looked at this last week, taught in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 where Jesus, or, or where in the Old Testament talks about if your wife is committing adultery that you should write her a bill of divorcement or a certificate of divorcement. In other words, the teaching in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was that unjustifiable divorce inevitably leads to adultery. The idea of allowing no-fault divorce has caused people to live in adultery. Like, well, you can be divorced for any reason. Jesus said, no, 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 you cannot. Because if you do that, you're causing people to commit adultery. You're allowing them to just jump from marriage to marriage to marriage. And in essence, they're committing adultery by being with multiple people instead of being faithful to the one that they married. So we are not to lower God's standards to meet our own. A lot of people, when it comes to this issue of divorce, want to take God's standard that may seem high and say, well, but I want it to fit my situation, so we'll lower it. That's not a right thing to do. The Pharisees ultimately were saying, if you don't like your wife, then just divorce her. As long as you get the paperwork right. You know, that's, that's all you got to do. Just go through the proper legal channels. 
And Jesus was confronting them about their twisted up thinking. They prided themselves on the fact that they hadn't actually committed adultery. Jesus said, but if you're looking at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Adultery. If you're just writing a bill of divorcement, he says, save for the issue of fornication, then you are also committing adultery. Remember, adultery was the seven, what the seventh commandment dealt with. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And these Pharisees, these Jewish people, they knew the Old Testament law. And they wanted to keep the law, at least from an outward perspective. So they had come up with these ways to sort of creatively find loopholes and circumvent the law. Well, as long as I don't look at a woman, or as long as I don't physically commit the act with a woman, it's not sin. As long as I give my wife the certificate of divorce, it's okay. And Jesus says, no, not at all. Jesus is quoted again in Mark chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. He said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. Did you catch that? He says, if you'll put away your wife, that's to divorce her and then marry another one, you're committing adultery against your wife. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Boy, these are strong words of the Lord. You see, by divorcing his wife on grounds other than adultery, a husband makes his innocent former wife commit adultery if she remarries. And it's assumed, that's what the scripture is, assuming she would get remarried. Jesus said as well in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Why is Jesus so strong on this issue of divorce? Well, if you weren't here last week, I, I, I gave a whole bunch of quotes and statistics and things from our society about how awful of an impact divorce has had on our culture that we live in today. How difficult it is for children growing up in single-parent homes. How difficult it is for single moms and single dads. How, how much struggle there is that can trace its roots back to divorce, which ultimately, of course, can trace its roots back to sin. And so Jesus is not pro-divorce, that's for sure. Jesus is not ever condoning divorce. See, He does here say that there are grounds for divorce that God will recognize, and it's used in several passages that I've already read, and that would only be fornication or adultery. So He does recognize that, but He doesn't condone it. Neither did God the Father in the Old Testament. What God joins together cannot be separated by man. The sin of adultery is the only thing that can break the bond of marriage. Why is that true? Well, for that, I want you to turn with me back to Leviticus 20, verse 10. Leviticus 20, verse 10. I'm going to try to hopefully explain this in a way that is clear and makes sense and in a relatively short period of time, but 
If we have more questions when this is over, that's okay. We'll open our Bibles and study some more. But uh, we may have to pick it up another week too. But Leviticus 20, verse 10. Why is it, this is what we're trying to figure out, why is it that adultery is the only thing that God would say can break the bonds of marriage? Since what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Is that just something man came up with? Uh, no, I don't believe so. I believe it's something from God. Leviticus 20.10 says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So in the Old Testament, what was the penalty for adultery? What was it? Death. Death. So... If God permitted divorce rather than death, then it was God showing mercy to that person who deserved, based on God's law, deserved to die. God was showing them mercy and saying, hey, if you've been wronged, if your wife or your husband, depending on who you are, if they've committed adultery against you, Instead of having to take them out and having them put to death, you may give them a bill of divorcement. Does that make sense? And so why would adultery be the only thing that breaks the bonds of marriage in God's eyes? Is because adultery, the consequence for adultery, biblically in the Old Testament was death. So that's really harsh. Well, God had a lot of very distinct things that He taught his people back in the Old Testament about how to deal with everything from what they ate to what they wore and everything that they did because he called them out to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works, to be separate from the wicked pagan people around them. And so God held them to a very high standard. But God in his mercy, and we looked at a number of passages last week on this, allowed for divorce. And he said he did this because of the hardness of their hearts. He permitted them to divorce for the issue of adultery. That is why I believe the sin of adultery, according to the Word of God, is the only thing that can break the bond of marriage. Under Old Testament law, adultery would dissolve the marriage because the guilty party would be put to death, which in essence, through death, the marriage vows would be dissolved. So, Adultery, in a sense, brought about the death of that person. Now, they didn't actually got allowed for divorce, so they weren't always stoned every time that that took place. And in fact, and I mentioned this last week, you see that example brought out in the mother of Jesus Christ himself. Because when Joseph found out that Mary was expecting a child, the Bible says that when he found out that Mary was with child, he was minded to put her away, the way the Bible explains it, privily or privately. And he says he was not willing to make her a public example. Well, what does that mean, to make her a public example? Well, under Old Testament law, if Mary's with child and it's not his, and she's betrothed to be married to him, he could legally have had Mary stoned. But remember, the angel came to him, by night. Now Joseph, he loved her. He wasn't going to have her stone. He was going to 
put her away privately, give her a bill of divorcement because she was found with child. She, in Joseph's mind, before he knew the whole story, he assumed she had committed adultery. But when the angel came to Joseph and said, Fear not to take unto thee, Mary, to be your wife, because the child she, had, she is with is from the Holy Ghost. So Joseph, which would have very much gone against the culture of the day, right? He married a woman who was pregnant with a child that was not his own because he knew from God that that child was the Son of God. And so Joseph took on a very difficult task, one that would have been not very well approved in society. People would have looked down upon Joseph and Mary and Jesus for that case, which is so true, isn't it? Like, and even Philippians talks about how Jesus was looked down upon how he came to earth and he, he was made in the form of man and then he was like a servant. He, he was lowest of the low. And God took the what, humanly speaking, people looked at as the lowest of the low, the child of a woman who, and, and, and he didn't know his own father. Of course, we know he did. He knew his, who his heavenly father was. But earthly speaking, Joseph was not his biological father. And so he was raised by someone who wasn't even his own dad. That's just an amazing story to think about what was going on there. So Joseph was not going to go through with, he was not going to have her stoned, but he was going to put her away. But instead of that, the angel said, no, go ahead and take her to be your wife. Now, I gave you some homework last week to read Jeremiah 3.8. I want us to turn over there as well, because this in this um, particular instance, we see God as he talks about a bill of divorcement being given to the Israelites for adultery. Jeremiah 3.8 says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. There's a lot going on here in this verse. At this point in Israel's history, the northern ten tribes were divided from the southern. The northern kingdom was divided from the southern kingdom. You had Judah and Benjamin kind of by themselves, and then you had the other ten tribes that had joined up and separated themselves from Judah. And the northern ten tribes, known sometimes as Israel, they had continued in idolatry and all kinds of wickedness, which if you're serving a God other than the true God, but you claim to be the people of God, then that is spiritual adultery, right? And so God says, I gave them a bill of divorce. And he said, and now the sister, Judah, the southern kingdom, that hasn't been a good example to them. They haven't taken that warning to heart, and now they're committing the same sin that the northern kingdom committed. And in the book of Jeremiah, I'm not giving too big of a commercial for my class starting in February, as we're going to be studying through Jeremiah again but on Sunday nights. But in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is ministering to the southern kingdom, Judah, right before Babylon comes in and overthrows the kingdom of Judah. And so the warning here to Judah is that God has already divorced the northern kingdom and he's going to divorce you too because of your sin. But notice the sin that he mentions. It's for the sin of 
adultery. Now, I made this point last week, but I want to make it again tonight because it's so important. Divorce is never commanded, even for adultery. So if your spouse were to commit adultery, it is not a command from God that you must divorce her because she committed adultery. You must divorce him because he committed adultery. Now that's what people often want to do when they go through that situation because it is such a horrible thing to go through. But it's never commanded by God. It is a last resort to be used only with an un, when unrepentant immorality continues on and you've exhausted any other recourse that you have and the guilty one will not be restored. You see, God permitted divorce rather than put them to death as a merciful concession to man's sinfulness. Think about it. Judgment in Babylon, judgment in Assyria for the northern kingdom, those were not comfortable situations, but they were the mercy of God. God could have just wiped them out for their sin. But God chose instead to give them the bill of divorcement, to divorce them. But remember later, we see that God will restore His people back to Himself. It's a beautiful Beautiful picture of how they sinned and turned against Him, went their own way, committed spiritual adultery, but God loved them in spite of it. Jesus makes it clear that God hates divorce and His ideal is a monogamous, lifelong marriage. God makes a gracious provision for those who are innocent of defiling the marriage to allow divorce on the single ground of fornication. Now, I want to give you one more scripture passage to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been talking about what does Jesus think of divorce. Well, later on in the New Testament, Paul has a brief section in 1 Corinthians where he deals with this same issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think it's up on the screen here. You can follow along there or in your Bible in your lap. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Paul says, Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Really, he's reiterating what Jesus has already said. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. That's God's design, right? To see marriages restored. He says, and let not the husband put away his wife. So you shouldn't just divorce your wife for any reason or divorce your husband or leave your husband for any reason. Verse 12, but the rest speak I, not the Lord. In other words, Paul says, I'm going to go even beyond what Jesus Christ said. Some people say, well, then we can't listen to that. Well, understand, Paul was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. So his words carry every bit as much weight as the words of Christ did because they are still the words from God. He says, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not. So Paul starts to deal with a unique situation. Let's say that you're a believer you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but your wife is not. That's what he's saying here. And your wife and she be pleased to dwell with him. Let him not put her away. This is an interesting circumstance. So think about it. Paul's dealing in Corinth, a lot of Gentiles in Corinth, right? And a lot of pagan idolatry, a lot of things were going on there. It was a very wicked city. And Paul, when he went there, and then later Apollos ministered there in Corinth, 
there was this church that began to grow. And you can imagine that in a city like that with all kinds of paganism going on, that there might have been a situation where a man would get saved and begin to follow Christ. But his wife was not a believer yet. So Paul's given them some instruction. Hey, men, if you're a follower of Christ, but your wife isn't yet, he says, and she's pleased to dwell with thee. In other words, she's happy to stay married to you. You're following God, but she's not, but she's still happy to stay married to you. Then he says, let him not put her away. That's a really helpful reminder. Hey, just because you're married to somebody that's not a believer doesn't give you the right to divorce them. And that's helpful to re be reminded of because it would be difficult, right? Scripture even talks about that, how it's difficult to be in a situation where you are unequally yoked, right? But if you, and you shouldn't intentionally put yourself in a situation where you're unequally yoked, the Scripture teaches that. So if you're a believer, you should not marry an unbeliever. But if you are already married and you are now a believer in Christ, then it's not appropriate to divorce your unbelieving wife or vice versa if it's the wife who's saved and the husband is unsaved just because they're not a believer. That's not grounds for divorce. That's really important because I hear of people sort of using that, well, we're just not equally yoked. Okay, but if you made the choice to get yoked, then you need to stay yoked as long as even that unbelieving spouse is willing to be married to you. Look at verse number, let's see, where are we? Verse 12, 13? No, verse 12. But to the rest I speak, not for if any brother hath a wife who believe not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Ladies, if your husband is not following after God, and you're trying to, it's not grounds for you to divorce him either. He says, for the unbelieving husband, this is really helpful, is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. What does that mean? So if you're in a relationship, now, you shouldn't intentionally put yourself in a relationship with an unbeliever, if you're a believer. But if you were already in that relationship, if you're married to that person, then you now have an opportunity to be a witness and a testimony to that unsaved spouse. That's what he's saying here. That's why the believing wife is sanctifier of her husband and the believing husband is a sanctifier to his unbelieving wife. And it says, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy? I believe this is a clear reference to the importance of the children that perhaps you now have between the two of you to raise. So if you're a believer and you divorce your husband because he's an unbeliever, that's going to be really hard on your kids. Unnecessarily hard on them. Or if you're a believer and your wife is an unbeliever, don't divorce her. That's going to be really hard on your kids. Instead, if you'll stay in the home, if you'll honor the Lord, if you'll walk with Him, even though it will be difficult because your spouse is not following after the Lord, you have the opportunity to have a sanctifying, a spiritual influence for good in the home. 
He says in verse 15, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. But Paul makes the statement really clear. Hey, you may, if you're a believer, don't just divorce your wife or your, husband, your spouse because they're not a believer. But if they leave you, you're released. You're no longer tied to that marriage. And because of that, you are free to go. You're not under bondage, it says in such cases, for God hath called us to peace. Now, once again, this is not something where divorce should ever be pursued or ever be um, desired. It's never something that we see God saying, I'm blessing divorce, I'm encouraging divorce. He never does. In fact, I think the longest and most beautiful picture of God's work, even in a very awful relationship situation, is in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. As Hosea, the prophet of God, marries this woman who was a harlot, a wicked woman, and over and over she left him and went off with other men, and over and over and over again, even so bad that she even enslaved herself to other people. Hosea went and he found her and he paid off her debts and he brought her back to himself over and over, which is a picture of how God dealt with his people, Israel, which I think is also a beautiful picture of how God continues to love us even when we fail him over and over and over again. This topic of divorce can be very tricky, but I do believe there are cases, some, very few, that where it is permitted biblically, Christ says it over and over, except for this cause. And I do believe, based on what he's teaching here in 1 Corinthians, what we just read, there are, it is permitted, remarriage is permitted in some cases, but there are not every case where it's permitted. Now, where does that leave us practically? Well, practically understand we ought to love marriage and we ought to cherish marriage and value it and work to build strong, healthy marriages. But the reality is we also deal with lots of people that struggle with or have been through a divorce. And the thing that we see over and over in Scripture, God is faithful and God forgives. And God loves and God is all about seeing restoration brought about. If someone insists on leaving you, based on 1 Corinthians 7, I believe, biblically, you can let them go. Now, I think you ought to do everything you can to continue to be a sanctifying influence on them to try to keep that marriage together as long as you possibly can. But based on 1 Corinthians 7, Biblically, you can let them go, and you're free to remarry. Now, if you are going to be remarried at some point, again, I think it's something that you need to walk through with wisdom. Marriage is God's plan, and it needs to be done in God's way. Don't get in a rush. Don't be racing after, well, this one didn't work out, I'm going to fix it. No, remember, the problem isn't divorce, the problem is sin. And sin isn't just residing in your spouse. It's residing in you. And so racing after uh, a new marriage or a new situation is something that must be done with God's timing, God's leadership, and 
God's direction in your life and in that other person's life. Because rushing, again, just like marriage doesn't fix, or just like divorce doesn't fix problems, sin problems, marriage doesn't fix sin problems either. Because you're just, again, taking two sinners apart or two sinners together doesn't fix the sin problem. All the sinners still need Jesus and need to follow Him. And so, no matter your situation tonight, I want you to know the Lord loves you. and He's faithful and He forgives. And as you consider this, you may have more specific questions about specific issues. I think one specific thing that is often brought up in our society today is, what about a situation where a wife is in, a, in an abusive situation where she's not, you know, she's not safe? And I know there have even been some where it's, where it's reversed and the husband's being abused by the, by the wife. I was dealing with something with that recently. Well, I think based on Scripture that God does want us to be in a place where we can be safe and be protected and not be taken advantage of. That's really clear in Scripture too. I don't think that divorce should be your first effort. I think the first step ought to be something like a legal separation. Understand, God's definitions of marriage and divorce, sadly, are very different than what we see being defined as marriage and divorce in our country today. Marriage and divorce for many people in our country today are really kind of just legal contracts that are written and then broken over and over and over again. God's idea for marriage is much stronger than what sort of the American idea of marriage when two people come and and make some promises and, and sign their names on a piece of paper and go their way and supposedly happily ever after. It's, it's a covenant relationship for life. And so if you're in a hard situation, you're being taken advantage of, we need to find a way to get you to safety and get you some space so you can get that taken care of. If the husband refuses to get right and continues to show himself to want to sin, I'm not saying you have to stay in the abuse. I'm just saying if he's refusing to repent for what he's done wrong, then you would have the ability to move away from that. Because in that sense, I believe he would fit under 1 Corinthians 7. He's behaving like an unbeliever here in this case and not repenting of his sin. I think the same thing could be said for a wife who refuses to repent of her sin and do right. I think for the believer, it's really simple though. Divorce is not something that we should be pursuing or rejoicing in, or looking forward to. Rather, we ought to be looking for restoration and peace that is only found through the Lord. And God gives that, and He's so faithful to do that. And what a beautiful picture it is, that Old Testament of Hosea and him bringing Gomer back, that was his wife's name, over and over again. A beautiful picture of how God is restoring and will restore his the bride, uh, the Israel, back to Himself. And even for us, lost in our sin, now God has saved us and brought us to Himself. And even when we fail Him, even when we mess up, even when we follow after other things, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, I hope that I've been able to explain this in a way that's at least somewhat clear. I hope it was very clear. If you have things that you still wonder about or have questions about, I'd love to talk about it with you. I think this is an important issue that we know from God's Word, what we believe and why we believe it, and that we can take it and apply it in our lives. 
God's word, as you understand, is not something that now, well, I know this is true, so I'm going to use it like a stick to go beat people over the head because I'm married and they're divorced and so therefore I'm better. No, we're all sinners, remember? Sin was the problem that caused all this in the first place. And so rather, I think this ought to encourage us to share the love of Christ because divorce breaks up and destroys so many things. And not just a marriage relationship, it destroys relationships with parents and children and all kinds of things in our society that just bring about all kinds of wreck and ruin. We ought to work to bring the love of Christ to minister grace wherever we go, to whomever we speak with, because Christ is the answer. As the old song goes, Christ is all I need. I'm thankful that He is. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the work of Christ that was finished on the cross. You paid for our sin once for all. But Lord, so many times we take our eyes off of You and look around us at the problems, the struggles, the sin in others and blame our struggle on other people's problems and fail to recognize that we ourselves are sinners in need of grace, in need of a Savior, in need of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that You would encourage our church family, and those who hear this study, even though it's on a difficult topic that can even be hard, like why, why do we even talk about these things? Well, because you talk about these things, Lord. And we want to speak your words and understand your truth from your word. I pray that you would make it plain to us and that we would live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.